Hey podcast listeners, this is Lillian Sue, one of the executive producers of the PCICS podcast. Dr. Christopher Knoll, cardiac intensivist here with me at Phoenix Children's, and I recorded a podcast while attending the 8th World Congress of Cardiology and Cardiovascular Surgery. Our guest at the time was Dr. Jim DiNardo, former chief of cardiac anesthesia of Boston Children's. His insights into recruitable lung, latest advances in anesthesia monitoring, microcirculation, and what makes a great surgeon from the perspective of an anesthesiologist who has worked with many throughout his time at Boston Children's was both enlightening and fun. We had such a good time interviewing him, we couldn't stop at the usual 40 minutes. So we split this episode into two parts. Here's part one. Part two will be released in early October. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Christopher Knoll, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Phoenix Children's, and I'm joined by my co-editor, colleague, and good friend, Dr. Lillian Sue, the Section Chief of Cardiac Critical Care at Phoenix Children's. Today, we will be speaking about recent advances in pediatric cardiac anesthesia with our guest, Dr. Jim DiNardo, Senior Associate of Cardiac Anesthesia at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard uh, School of Medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. DiNardo, for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Um, let's get started right uh, with the first question. Uh, you are moderating a session on cardiac anesthesia at the World Congress of Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery named The Tale of Two Ventricles and are one of the key speakers at a follow-up session on recent advances in pediatric cardiac anesthesia. For those of us who won't be able to attend these talks in person, uh, would you mind sharing the key points from both sessions? Sure. So this morning we did the uh, session on the tail of two ventricles, and um, the emphasis was primarily on ventricular ventricular interaction. Um, Walid Halbray and um, Andreas Lapke spoke about the um, complex relationships between the RV and the LV, and the fact that um, RV function. Um, is really largely um, dependent on the work of the interventricular septum and that um, in the absence of um, septal contribution to contraction, that uh, RV function deteriorates dramatically. Uh, that was, those were both very nice presentations. There was also a presentation about um, the effect of uh, positive pressure ventilation on um, RV function and um, hemodynamics. And the uh, emphasis there was really on the fact that PEEP can be a useful intervention, um, but it also can be um, quite detrimental in the sense that um, really what you're looking for PEEP to do is to reduce, um, is to involve lung recruitment to the point where you can reduce driving pressure. And at high levels of PEEP, you actually compromise pulmonary blood flow, which makes sense through compression of intra, um, art intrapulmonary uh, arteries and pulmonary blood flow. And that unless, you know, you can demonstrate that PEEP is recruiting lung volume and allows you to uh, reduce driving pressure, 
you're really not reducing mechanical injury to the lung, and you're certainly not optimizing ventilation. So that was very interesting. Um, that was um, part of Waleed's presentation. And then the um, the other um, part of that was that um, ventilatory rate and inspiratory times. Um, and I know, you know, we encounter this a lot in my group, in my cardiac anesthesia group, which is the idea that, you know, relatively high ventilator rates are what children desire, which turns out uh, to be only partially true. If you think that, you know, each breath um, is responsible for some degree of lung deformation and mechanical injury, then obviously the more breaths per minute that are supplied, the more likely you are to have lung injury. And the uh, other point is that, um, if you're using pressure-controlled ventilation, which is really what you want to do because of the decelerating flow curve, you really want to make sure that you have a short enough inspiratory time and a long enough expiratory time that you actually come to zero flow before the next breath is initiated, which I think is something that people don't necessarily appreciate. And I know you know, in the operating room, it's not uncommon for me to walk in on a case um, where, you know, the default ventilator rate is in the 30s, which is what our anesthesia machines do, which is um, clearly, you know, not optimal. And more often than not in, a, you know, anesthetized child in the operating room with low CO2 production from um, low oxygen, uh, low oxygen consumption or low metabolic rate, you can often, you know, pre-bypass have rates as low as um, um, 10 or 12 or 15 breaths a minute and have adequate gas exchange. So that, that was a really interesting presentation. Thank you so much for all of that, especially for those of us who tried to get into your session, but it was actually standing room only and they were actually not letting people in because there were so many people trying to get into the session. I had a, a couple questions just for follow up, just from a practical point of view. You're talking about this optimal peak where lung is still recruitable. What would you say clinically people can do to assess that? And then my second question is, is about the interventricular septum and how, when it is impaired, its function is impaired, it really hurts the RV. And practically speaking, are there any things that could modulate that or improve that? So, you know, I think the simplest, I mean, the method I use in the operating room, and obviously in the ICU, the ventilators are more sophisticated and you have um, really good pressure volume loops. But, you know, one of the things you can look at when you look at PEEP um, is really look at, uh, um, you know, the ventilator measure of lung compliance. And if you do, you know, do a recruitment maneuver and then um, add PEEP, and you actually don't see an improvement in lung compliance, it's a pretty safe bet that, you know, you're on a part of the pressure volume loop that is not a not does not have a steep slope and is ascending, and that you may actually be over distending the lung if you're not seeing an improvement in compliance. So um and I think you can be fooled by that a little bit because if you don't do the recruiting maneuver at the beginning, you may not actually be able to recruit enough lung for the PEEP to be beneficial. But, you know, I find most of the time in the operating room with the kids that come from the ICU, they've already had their lung pretty well optimally recruited. 
And adding, you know, a lot of extra PEEP almost never improves compliance. And so really all you're doing is compromising pulmonary blood flow and delivering mechanical energy that's probably disadvantageous. I mean, I think as far as impairment of the ventricular septum, that's a tough one because, um, you know, if you have impairment of ventricular septal contraction because of myocardial ischemia, um, obviously then, you know, you need to treat the underlying cause. But I think a bigger issue is, you know, deformation of the septum due to high um, right ventricular intercapitary pressures, right, where you get compromise of diastolic filling of the LV. And there, you know, I think what you're left with is interventions to try to um, decrease PVR and increase RV function. Thank you so much for that. And just another practical tip for you at Boston Children's, what, what is your favorite kind of recruitment maneuver from over the years? What do you like to do to recruit law? So, you know, I, I mean, I think of things pretty simply. I don't do anything fancy. I just do, you know, sustained um, inflation for a couple of seconds. And, you know, in the OR, oftentimes we have the advantage of actually being able to see the lungs. So you can see that they're optimally recruited and that there are no atelectatic areas. Um, I know people worry a lot about, you know, the peak pressure to, to um, obtain recruitment, but I, I have to say I'm often surprised, you know, when you can see a lung in the field, the amount of pressure that you need to apply to completely relieve atelectasis is a lot higher than any respiratory therapist would allow you to do if they were looking over your shoulder, you know. Um, 30 or 40 millimeters of mercury in a neonate, which doesn't really make anybody comfortable. But I actually think in some circumstances, at least for a short interval, it requires that type of pressure to get complete recruitment. Now, obviously, you know, you don't want to be cavalier about that because you could be injuring lung that um, is on a more favorable part of the compliance curve. But I think if you're really... Um, if you're really going to be serious about full recruitment, you may actually have to do that. Plus with the benefit of having the chest open and being able yeah. to visualize. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, I mean, it gives you a lot more confidence to, at least for a very short interval, use that kind of a pressure. Uh, difficult to do that, I think, or harder to do that when you can't see the lung. Piggybagging on the sessions today uh, and thinking about the session tomorrow on, on recent advances in cardiac anesthesia, you want to talk a little bit about what you consider the most important advances in the last five to 10 years since this World Congress was a little delayed? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I was thinking a lot about that. And honestly, I don't, you know, we, there haven't really been development of new, any new anesthetic agents. I mean, they come along very rarely. I mean, the only real agent um, that's new that's made any sort of significant impact, and you could argue it's not that significant in our world, is, uh, you know, the drug Sigamidex, which is a reversal agent for non-steroidal muscle relaxants, which has basically eliminated the use of, you know, neostigmine and glycopyrrolate or neostigmine and atropine. I, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing in that... Um, you know, if you're looking for rapid um, 
or in OR uh, extubation or early ICU extubation, you have the advantage of having a more reliable reversal agent for neuromuscular blocking agents. But I, I don't see I don't see that as you know a huge advance because we had agents to do that before. And you know, dexmedetomidine's been around for a long time. I think people pretty much, you know, can do with dexmedetomidine what they think they can do. There's a shorter acting version of midazolam around, which from a practical point of view, you know, I don't think has that much utility. It's sort of a benzodiazepine version of remifentanil, which, you know, in ICU practice is not really a commonly used drug, and we don't use it that much in the operating room. So, you know, I would say, at least in my mind, I think the biggest advance um, would be the recognition or the necessity on the part of um, pediatric cardiac anesthesiologists to keep up with the rapid development of um, new techniques, both in the cath lab and surgically. And I'll, I'll give you, I mean, I'll give you a good example of that from our place. You know, we, when people first started employing the sono modification of the Norwood, you know, everybody pretty much did it the same way, which was, you know, um, you took a four millimeter or five millimeter Gore-Tex tube and you, um, anastomosed it to the RV free wall and to the um, MPA. And, you know, that technically worked quite well. It involved, though, a major management strategy change that even in our place, people were slow to recognize, which was, you know, the strategy of very low SVR um, in the setting of a modified um, Blaylock-Thomas um, Tausick shunt really was no longer applicable to those patients because the resistance across the sono shunt was so great that, um, you know, they required significantly higher systemic blood pressure um, to be able to have adequate pulmonary blood flow. And then, you know, the surgeons, God love them, because they're always innovating, at least at our place, started um, you know, using bigger size shunts and also um, dunking them into the ventricle so that there was, you know, no inflow obstruction to the sono shunt. And then, you know, they started using femoral vein and putting valves in them. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that subtly changes management. But if you're not keeping up with, um, you know, that kind of stuff, both the, you know, um, cardiac anesthesia people and the ICU people can get caught on their back foot um, understanding what the implications of those kind of things are. So, um, you know, I've always been a proponent of cardiac anesthesia people and ICU people being physiologists first, because I think it always boils down to understanding physiology. Um, but I think it's even more important now. I mean, I think people really need to... Um, understand, um, you know, what's being done and how it changes management. Um, I think, the, you know, the other example is um, ductal stents, which is, you know, totally changed the way we deal with um, maintaining pulmonary blood flow. 
and um, you know, understanding what the impl the anesthetic implications of placing a PDA stent, and you know what the immediate period post stent placement looks like. Um, you know, I don't I don't think we've made, and I don't think it would be expected that we would make much headway into resolving the issue of how anesthetic agents. Um, affect subsequent neurobehavioral outcome? I think that's an unanswerable question. I, I don't, I know there are a lot of people that spend a lot of time thinking about it, but in the absence of a massive, um, you know, controlled trial that where you could, you know, account for multiple, multiple confounders, I don't, I don't think we're ever going to see an answer to that question. I mean, as you know, um, that's that's only a small part of the issue. The whole issue of exposure to the you know agents during the ICU course is a whole nother variable, you know. And if you're going to believe that um, exposure to those agents influences outcome during a you know the operative period, you can't ignore the post-operative period. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have to own that, Chris. Yes. At this time, we'd like to interrupt this podcast to thank the episode's sponsor, Inova L.J. Murphy Children's Hospital. It is an award-winning full-service children's hospital that offers the highest level of dedicated pediatric care in the Northern Virginia metropolitan region. They have comprehensive medical services, which are geared toward the unique treatment of infants, children, and adolescents, and support for their families. As a children's hospital on the greater Inova Fairfax Medical Campus, they are able to care for patients from the time they are born throughout adulthood. Thanks again for sponsoring this episode. I, I was going to actually follow up about neuromonitoring in the ICU, and not just neuromonitoring, but have there been any advances in the technology of monitoring while in the OR, or do you actually think it hit its golden standard? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, as someone who's been involved with NEARS and NEARS research for a long time, I mean, I think NEARS has a place. It's pretty interesting. I think it's a good, at least in the operative setting, it's a good uh, monitor for averting potentially catastrophic events. Um, you know, the best example being... Um, baby who, you know, you think might have bad superior vena cava drainage as a technical issue with a surgeon, um, you know, with a CVP that looks high, but, you know, it's not clear if it's high because it's really high or the catheter is caught in the cannula. And, you know, the NEARS data then becomes somewhat reassuring, um, as does, you know, examination of the baby's head and their fontanelle, if they've got an open fontanelle. Um, and also in terms of, you know, subtle things like deciding, um, you know, uh, is it a good time to pull a trigger on blood transfusion if we've done, you know, if we've normalized CO2 and we've normalized perfusion pressure and we still have veneers that we're not excited about, is it worth considering transfusion? I, I think it's helpful there. But then again, you know, um, myself and John Keir, who's one of the ICU guys at our place, have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what does NEARS tell you um, in terms of adequacy of global perfusion? And, 
you know, what you come to find out is that um, your brain, you know, has this amazing capacity to protect itself in the face of overwhelming insult. And, you know, you'll, a baby will maintain what resembles a normal nears, even in the setting of other indices of horribly low systemic O2 delivery. So I, I think that's useful. Um, you know, the awareness of that is useful. Honestly, I think until we get technology that allows us to look at um, oxygen delivery at a more cellular level, you know, like at a cytochrome level, um, or, you know, we have a better indices of microvascular circulation, I, I don't know that we're going to go anywhere. I, I mean, I have some hope that people will, you know, come up with better methods of assessing the microcirculation, but at the moment it's pretty bad. And and the global indices are just, you know, not great. I mean, mixed venous sat is interesting, um, you know, and we know that if your mixed venous is down around 30, you're probably in trouble. But other than that, you know, at a organelle level, we don't we don't know a lot. And I know Boston's doing some microvascular research. I think Josh Lavin presented some a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. So that's there's some exciting stuff. That's yeah. Happening. I mean, there are people that are definitely moving ahead. And I'm always amazed, you know, when you start involving the um, engineers who may not actually know anything about the medical part of it and the, you know, technology of doing stuff like that, the stuff they come up with. I mean, that's been true, you know, for instance, in the coagulation world where, you know, you get engineers um, who are creative about, you know, figuring out clot strength, who know nothing about, you know, what clot does, and you get some really interesting stuff out of that. So I think there's hope. Especially if you show somebody our elephants that we're dealing with and you have somebody from a completely different discipline they see that elephant from a different perspective and then give you their take without Absolutely. having our biases already from the clinical world. So given given this discussion, are there things that you're hoping for in the next five to 10 years or technologies that you see coming down the pike that you see potential application? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I'd like to see the microcirculation stuff move forward. I think it would go a long way towards... Um, I don't know, resolving, but, you know, the whole transfusion issue obviously is sort of a favorite of mine. Um, you know, and we go back and forth about blood is good, blood is bad. I, You know, I don't know. I have no idea anymore. I mean, I think as a general principle, you know, if you don't need to get a blood transfusion, it's probably a good idea not to get a blood transfusion. But I think it's way more complicated than than that. And I think there are things that, you know, not to beat it to death, but go on at the microvascular level that would help us make much more intelligent decisions about blood transfusion and oxygen delivery. And, I, you know, and I think the other part of it is... Um, you know, there's a whole lot of um, recent excitement about patient blood management, which I find fascinating because, you know, that's always been an issue. I mean, we all of us who do what we do have always been conscious of managing blood and, you know, being parsimonious about it. But, you know, now it has a name and a face to it. 
Um, I find that kind of interesting. I mean, you know, what I mean, and what does it come down to, right? Good surgical technique, avoiding bleeding, anti-fibrinolytics. I mean, that's all stuff we've known. Um, I guess we could, you know, the emphasis on doing a better job of that makes sense, but I don't, I don't want to pick on the blood management people, but I don't know that, you know, putting a name and a face on it, I think is helpful in spreading the, you know, spreading the gospel, if you will. But I think a lot of it is stuff that, you know, we've already known and appreciated. Um, I suppose one area where we could be better is we're not great at um, identification and, you know, preoperative treatment of anemia, we could definitely do a better job with that. Um, you know, like iron supplementation and that kind of stuff. We don't do very well with that. That's one simple thing. Um, and I think some of the work with the Jehovah's Witnesses and programs that really dedicate their programs to blood conservation do start patients on iron and yeah yeah and the Jehovah's Witness people are very very sophisticated when it you know comes to knowing the literature about blood conservation techniques and the limits of anemia and that kind of thing so yeah so at Boston Children's you have quite a number of surgeons how ma how many total are there now. So let me think. There are probably seven or eight anyway. And they may have different inotrope or pressor. Yeah. Or, and among the cardiac anesthesiologists, you may also have... Yeah, there's very, 17 of us. There's 17 yeah. of you. Yeah. So are there certain, as far as for someone who's newer in the field, kind of guidelines you use for how you want a patient to come out bypass? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting topic. And I've, you know, given a couple of talks about that using stuff from our institution. So if if you think about this, um, you know, seven surgeons, 17 different anesthesiologists, and probably almost as many perfusionists, on any given day, you know, the combination of those three people um, I don't have the math off the top of my head, but, you know, it, it numbers in the thousands of combinations. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, in fact, I think it's a bad thing. The problem with that is, and I, you know, um, up until this past November, I was chief of our division. I s voluntarily stepped down in November um, and Vivian Nasser took over for me. But, you know, one of the things I struggled with, um, you know, if you, if you want to have really good, motivated, intelligent, innovative people work with you and work for you, <laughs> you can't, in medicine, you can't really be micromanaging everything they do. They don't want to be robots. No. They don't want to be perfect. They don't. That's not the way physicians think. And, you know, you need to allow people to sort of discover and grow on their own. The problem with that is, you know, how do you balance that against the fact that in a particular institution, you may have a thousand different versions of the way you do a switch? That, that's not really acceptable, I don't think. And so the question is, that being said, you know, how do you identify 
the things that are mission critical in terms of management and draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, you can think like you want to think about everything but these five things. And I think, honestly, that's, you know, where we need to go. The question is, you know, what are the five things? And are people going to agree that, you know, that's it? And I think to make it even more complicated, I'm not sure the five things at my place are the same five things that are true at your place. You know, when that comes up um, a lot in the um, decisions people make about transfusion and management of coagulation factors and stuff, you know, when people want to say, okay, well, you should do this or you should do that, I think the problem with that is that you have to come up with a local solution to those questions based on the nuances of what you do at your particular institution, you know, rather than spending a bunch of time worrying about what other people are doing. I mean, I think there are lessons to be learned from what other people do. But, you know, as a simple example, um, if if your strategy for a neonate is that you're going to prime the pump with FFP and, you know, red cells or reconstituted whole blood, I don't think you can really have a, um, you know, a good conversation or that isn't the right word. I don't think you can compare management with an institution that doesn't prime with FFP. They're two completely different things. And, you know, the management post bypass is going to be completely different based just on that simple decision. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're just different. The question is, you know, how you manage a baby who, you know, has a full, relatively full complement of coagulation factors when they come off bypass versus how you manage a baby who doesn't for whatever reasons you decided not to do that are completely different. And I, I don't know that they're comparable. So, you know, me telling someone who works at an institution where they're avoiding FFP priming on pump is not really going to be very helpful to them. I mean, that's something, you know, that needs to be figured out at a local level. Which speaks to the frustration of the heterogeneity of our field. Yeah. And the difficulty in identifying data points that are true signal above the Which is why, you know, I think a lot of the questions that we ask and people say, well, why don't you guys answer these questions? I think they're unanswerable in the current world, given, you know, the amount of subtle variation in practice, which is a little bit frustrating. Um, You know, but, but what's the only way around that? The only way around that is if we did every single case in one place, which is, you know, not gonna happen, not anytime soon. Which is why I think meetings like this are so well attended and you're overflowing your room with people that clearly had different opinions on even the most basic questions like what inotrope to use, what is an inotrope, what works and doesn't. Yeah. And which is why when you assemble a really smart group of people like that, you know, you're going to get disagreement about um, things, which I think is good um, because, you know, the, the nuances of the physiology they have at their place is different 
than the nuance of the physiology you have at your place. I, I think, you know, that's good. I think what you don't want to waste time on is, um, you know, argue that certain things we know to be true, um, you know, or at least we have good evidence that certain things are true. And, um, you know, if you're you, if you're applying a therapy, I mean, the one that comes to mind is a pet peeve of mine is milrinone, right? You know, what is milrinone? What does it do? Everyone loves it. You ask 10 people why they do it and you get 10 different answers. Well, okay. You know, there are some very simple facts about the drug that we know to be true, right? We know that, you know, it's a drug that requires a loading dose to reach a plasma level. We know it has a very long half-life. We know that, you know, the plasma levels that are therapeutic in a baby and a teenager come at very different infusion rates. Um, we know that it's an intense vasodilator plus minus being an inotrope. I don't think it's much of an inotrope at all. Um, you know, those are the facts. Those are indisputable. With that in mind, you know, people are free to use it however they see fit to use it if it, you know, allows them to reach an endpoint, a definable endpoint that is also verifiable, right? I mean, I don't really care. But, you know, we can have conversations about, you know, mystical properties of a drug um, in defiance of, you know, all the hard data that we have about it, right? So, you know, if you want to tell me that you want to use it, you know, and this used to come up in the ICU all the time, you bring a baby over from the floor and, you know, they don't look great and you think they would benefit from milrinone and somebody starts it and five minutes later they come back and say the baby looks better. Well, okay, you know, no, that's not possible. <laughs> um, unless something magic just happened, you know, the drug doesn't work like that. Um, so, you know, that kind of stuff complicates things too, I think. But I think as long as we're talking about the same thing, and we recognize what we know to be true. Um, yeah, and I think a drug like milrinone almost has a halo over it. And I'm guilty of having loved milrinone early in my career. But I've seen it where people love milrinone so much, they do not want to stop it despite hypotension, despite the need for a vasopressor like vasopressin or norepi. They still insist on having the milrinone as if it's some magical right. yeah. thing. And the baby's persistently hypotensive. Yeah, I would completely agree with you, right? Because if you look at that, you know, dispassionately and you say to yourself, okay, you know, the reason I'm starting the drug is because it has vasodilator properties, which in the face of a failing ventricle, um, you know, the gain would be all in increasing stroke volume and minimal change in blood pressure, then yeah, that's great. But, it, you know, if you're having to counteract the vasodilatory effect with another drug, then you've essentially negated, um, you know, the major reason to be using it in the first place. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff like that. I think those kinds of things, um, you know, they prolong ICU stay, they complicate ICU stay. And, you know, honestly, they don't make any of us look very smart. Switching gears a little bit, 
on the next question, getting back to your comment earlier that everybody that works in an ICU should be a physiologist first, having had the privilege of training at Boston Children's and having exposure to multiple training backgrounds in the CBICU as a trainee, would you mind commenting on that model of how the cardiac anesthesiology and colleagues integrate into the CBICU at Boston Children's? For the answer to that question and much more wisdom from Dr. DiNardo, you'll have to tune in to part two of this podcast, which will be released in early October. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org where you'll be able to find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License. Thank you.